0: Well, good morning. It's a delight to be with you this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, where you'll find your place in verse 14 of this chapter. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. Decisiveness is a quality that reflects an ability to act on the basis of available information with the right timing. It's a quality that we look for in leaders, especially when you think of leaders in a military context or in a corporate setting. It's important to be able to act with the available information and in a sense of urgency, in a way that's appropriate based on what is known and what's not known. But sometimes, we all face a situation where we are paralyzed by our need for more information or a fear of commitment, a fear of missing out, or a fear of making a mistake. Or, perhaps we simply hope that a better option will come along. In our text this morning, we're going to see that, as Jesus' ministry neared its conclusion, He confronted a generation of men and women who were struggling to make a decision concerning Him. They were struggling to decide, to follow Him in faith. And so, there were many in that generation, who were straddling the fence, so to say. Unable to make that commitment. Not because the information available to them was not sufficient, and not because, of the, um, not because the time was not right or there was no urgency, but because they simply found themselves unable to get over that, whatever the fear was that was causing them not to commit to him. So he confronted them, and he challenged them to leave that fence, so to say, and to commit their lives to trust him. So he challenges us as well as we come to this text in Luke chapter 11. I'll read verse 14 down to verse 36. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, It passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. The last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who, may, those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Father in heaven, we recognize, O Lord, that this passage is full of difficulties, that we need your wisdom, the wisdom that you store up for those who seek it from you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us wisdom to understand from this text the height, the depth, and the breadth of your love for us as you've shown it to us in, in Christ. May we see clearly from this text what it is that you're calling us to do, the decision that you would call us to make, the trust that you would call us to exude. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds to make us people are not like this generation of unbelievers, but rather people of faith who trust You through all that we may face. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this text, one of the challenges that comes before us is the fact that we have a text that's full of wise teaching. And when we see the teaching of the wise men of Scripture, the sages, of people like Solomon and and others, and, and pro, uh, preeminently Jesus himself, we see that character of that wise kind of teaching in parables, in proverbs, in beatitudes, and other forms. We are confronted with a challenging form of literature that is not easy to interpret right off the bat. And I think this text is full of statements from Jesus that are enigmatic, that are difficult to understand. And yet, as we look at them, we're going to see how we can understand them by following Luke's lead as the narrator of this gospel. See, I think one way in which Luke guides us to solutions in some of the difficult texts that are before us is by connecting them with other texts within his gospel, by embedding language and, um, and, and phrases that remind us of things that we've encountered and things that we will see. And when we see these things in relationship to one another... Some of these very difficult sayings that Jesus has in this text will become a bit more clear, I think. So that's one of the things that we're going to do as we proceed through this text. Another challenge is that it's a rather lengthy portion of Scripture. Now, I want you to know that it's my intention at this point in the Gospel of Luke to accelerate a little bit as we work through it together. My hope was uh, to get through one chapter at a time all the way through chapter 19, and I'm already failing at that. We're not going to get all the way through chapter 11, but we are going to cover larger sections because though it's, uh, there are a lot of verses, what we're going to see in these sections of the Gospel of Luke is that there's a consistent theme that binds together large portions, and we're also going to see a kind of a, a, a helpful repetitiveness where the same ideas and the same themes are going to come up again and again. And the central theme that's going to bind together all of chapters 11 through 19, is the kingdom of God. We're going to see that Jesus is going to teach us again and again concerning the kingdom of God and what its coming means for us as followers of Christ. Well, today we're going to see that, uh, in that, that broader theme of the kingdom of God, we're going to see a, another theme of confrontation where Jesus confronts and challenges this generation before him to repent of their indecision, and to follow Him in faith. The way we're going to see that is in three ways, that Jesus is going to show them the illogical and disastrous nature of willful unbelief. The logical and disastrous nature, that is illogical, I should say, uh, and disastrous nature of willful unbelief. We're going to see that in those people who said, He cast out demons by the prince of the demons. We're also going to see that Jesus confronts indecision by showing that the situation is very urgent and all the information that we need to make an appropriate decision is available to us. And finally, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to make that decision by seeing him for who he is in a way that is right, so that we understand his identity, our relationship to him, and the basis for that relationship And on that basis, we decide appropriately to follow him as he's calling us, not as we would like to follow. So the very first thing then that we see is that willful unbelief is illogical and disastrous. Look at verse 14 and following. We see here that Jesus is casting out a demon. And that demon happens to be one that is mute. That is, that demon causes the man who he possesses to be unable to speak. Most likely, this is a combination of both muteness and deafness. That's what's going on, and it's the incident that uh, that incites the, the, the discourse that follows. Jesus is casting out this demon. The demon goes out. The mute man speaks, and everybody marvels at what they've seen. But what we see is that not all of their marveling was characterized by faithful amazement. Not everyone in the crowd was amazed or uh, was uh, believed because of that amazement. We see right off the bat in verse 15 that some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, which is a, another name for Satan. It, it recalls the name of Baal, that false god that the Israelites worshipped throughout their history. And so they're alleging, they, they, they can't deny that Jesus has just cast out this demon. And so these opponents of him have willfully rejected him. They've made up their mind. They have no problem with indecision, but their decision is wrong. They've decided he's not the Christ, he's not sent from God, and therefore the one who empowers him in these mighty works is the prince of demons himself. Jesus shows them that this is utterly illogical. We're going to come back to that next group of people, those who are continually seeking a sign from him, representing That sense of indecision, as if there's not enough information yet for them to make a judgment, to make a decision. But first, we're going to focus on the illogical nature of unbelief. You see, Jesus is going to show how wrong these people are in that judgment that they've made. Look at verse 17. First, he discerns their thoughts. He knows their thoughts, and we recall what Simeon prophesied all the way back in Luke chapter 2. Verse 34 and 35 when he said to Mary that this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, that he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. And all through the gospel we've seen Jesus doing just that, discerning the thoughts of men's hearts and revealing them, bringing those to light. And here he does it too. He brings to light the thoughts of those people who are denying him and questioning him. And he says every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. We have this proverbial statement, this maxim. It's a simple truism. When there's internal conflict within a house or within a kingdom, it will destroy that kingdom or that house. We think of our own civil war and how Abraham Lincoln, in his speech about that war, drew upon this language to describe the United States at that time as a house divided, as a as a nation that was at risk of destroying itself through that inner conflict. What Jesus wants them to understand is that essentially what they're saying is that this is the nature of Satan's kingdom. Which you think, well, why is that a problem? Why is that illogical? Because there's no evidence that that's actually what's taking place. There's no evidence before them, nor is there any evidence from Scripture that that is how Satan's kingdom is going to come to its end. Jesus is confronting people who would say they believe in Scripture. We know from Genesis 3.15 that Satan, that great deceiver, will come to his end not through internal conflict with his kingdom dying out with a whimper, but through the hand of a seed, an offspring of the woman, a promised offspring that would one day come and crush his head. And we also can see throughout the Old Testament that Satan's kingdom operated through human rulers who exalted themselves over and against God and His people. And God continually said through the prophets that He Himself would bring an end to those kingdoms as a a way of portending that final destruction of Satan's kingdom. His destruction would come at the hand of God through His anointed one, not through internal conflict. There's no biblical basis for their claim. There's no evidence. They're simply reasoning backward from a conclusion that they've already made. This is not the Christ, and so we're going to come up with an argument that makes sense of the conclusion that we've already embraced. That's not a good way to argue. It's not a logical way to argue. It defies common sense, and Jesus is showing that to them. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. There's another logical problem with this argument. Oftentimes, people will make arguments then without considering the full consequences of what they're arguing. We see this in the political realm. We see this in the realm of public discourse. People make an argument, but they don't consider all of the, uh, the, the logical consequences of that argument. And if they would have, they would realize that their belief would lead them to, hold, to, to necessarily hold convictions that they would find necessarily unattractive. You see, in that time, there were other exorcists in Israel. You can turn over if you want, or to Luke, we're not going to turn there now, but to Acts 19. And you see there that, uh, that, that, that they encounter um, itinerant exorcists, itinerant Jewish exorcists going around and exercising demons. Right? So there were others in that time. So when Jesus refers to your sons, He's referring to your people within Israel, those of your people who go around exercising demons. And if you reject what I'm doing, claiming that I'm doing it by the power of Satan, what basis do you have for not saying the same thing about your sons? Do you see the idea of what he's saying? If I cast out demons by Satan's power, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Then he makes this very stark charge to them. Therefore, they will be your judges. Essentially, what he's saying is that on the basis of this rejection, which is illogical, at the final judgment, those men who are doing that same work will stand up at the judgment and and they'll, they'll say something like this. You believed us. You believed the work we were doing, and yet he was doing greater and mightier works than us, and you rejected him. That's the evidence that's brought to bear against you when you stand for judgment. You will not be able to say, well, we didn't have enough information, or it wasn't quite clear enough for us to make the right judgment. It's a very stark warning that Jesus gives to those who have rejected him, that your sons, in fact, will stand as your judges on that day of judgment. But in contrast, then, Jesus will give them an alternative explanation He'll give them a more logical explanation, one that they should have considered, but they're not willing to consider. In verse 20, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see the logic that he's employing? If you consider this premise, this possibility, that I'm actually doing this by the power of God... And what does that say about what has come upon you? Or you could render this idea of overtaking you as if you, you have the image in your mind of uh, a runner overtaking another runner in the race here. The kingdom of God has overtaken you. That's the consequence if that premise is true. And if that's true, then there's all sorts of things that they ought to do if they hope to be included in that kingdom. Jesus goes on to say, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. He's simply using ideas from their own experience that we can also see in our own experience to understand, to to, to establish basic maxim and basic principles that will undergird his contention. You know, we we all know people in our our own day who have a small armory in their basement. I had the privilege to go with some men and, and go and shoot some targets the other day and the array of weapons that they brought out was, uh, could have been the envy of a small army unit. But in reality, if uh, the army gathered together outside their door, all of those weapons would not enable them to stand against the full might of the United States Army. We know that. We know that uh, uh, no, no civilian is, is going to alone be able to stock up enough to defend himself against a strong army like that. Well, in the same way, a nation or a kingdom may gather its forces, may gather its strength and feel secure. That's what Jesus is saying. But when a strong man or when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, what does he do? He confiscates his weaponry, his armor, his defenses. He takes it away, those things in which he trusted, and he divides the spoil. It's no avail. Well, what's, the, what's the point that Jesus is saying? The better explanation for what's going on, if I'm casting out demons and I'm coming against the kingdom of Satan as the one who brings the kingdom of God, is that I am the one stronger. I am the one who is able to command demons and they must obey. That's what Jesus is saying and showing to them. Now, they don't believe this. They reject this. Elsewhere, in Matthew, for instance, and later in Luke, we'll see this, that this particular charge that they brought against him is considered the unforgivable sin because It's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So I don't think necessarily that Jesus is calling them to change their minds, but rather he's refuting them as an example to those of us who might be standing on the fence. We saw there's another group there, those who kept seeking a sign. They they, they weren't content with what Jesus had shown. They should have been. Why? Why? because Isaiah very clearly prophesied that in the day of the Lord's salvation, what kind of things would take place? The blind would see, the deaf would hear, the mute would speak, the lame would walk. And in other words that we can see in Isaiah 49 and elsewhere, he used language that Jesus echoes himself here in the way he describes the strong man, that God on that day of salvation would come and he would vanquish his enemies. He would take from them what is rightfully his. This is what Jesus is showing himself to do. The question that should come to them, those men who know the scriptures is, does the work that you are witnessing, does it mirror the work that you know belongs to Satan? Works of murder and works of deceit and works of destruction. Or does the work signify the kind of work that God himself does? Jesus is not destroying a man's life, he's restoring him whole. He's restoring his tongue. He's restoring his hearing. He's giving that man his life back, in a sense. He's doing the kind of things that God does. They ought to reason rightly on the basis of the evidence before them. They've got enough to know that this one, who comes with this kind of power, this extraordinary power, is sent by God. He doesn't do extraordinary works like demons do, destroying people. He does extraordinary works like God does, restoring and saving. And so we see then that as Jesus presents himself as the one stronger than Satan, the one who brings the kingdom of God, he issues this challenge to those people who are straddling the fence. Whoever is not with me is against me. and Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We come to that second point then as he shows us that indecision concerning Christ is a decision concerning Christ. Indecision concerning Christ is a decision concerning Christ. If we've seen how illogical, willful unbelief is, and we're warned against that, now we see the disaster of indecision. Look back with me to chapter 9 in verse 50. In a similar context there, I'll read in verse 49 through 50, we remember that they're going to see a man who's performing exorcisms. We just mentioned the idea of itinerant exorcists being uh, prevalent in Israel at the time. And here we see such a man, but he's doing it in Jesus' name. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for for the one who is not against you is for you. Here in chapter 11, then, we see Jesus saying something quite different. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And why the difference? How can we explain what's going on here? Well, Jesus is making it quite clear that it's not about whether or not people follow me or any of you or any of the disciples in that context. The kingdom of God is not first and foremost and primarily about them. They're not the king. You don't have to follow any particular disciple in order to be in the kingdom of God. But you do have to follow the king. You do have to submit to His rule. You do have to come under His lordship. That is absolutely essential. There's no way that one can say, I am part of the kingdom of God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, my Lord and Savior and Redeemer, who came to save me from my sins. Apart from that decision of faith, there is no way in to the kingdom of God. You don't have to come through any particular human teacher except the one who is God who became man. You must come through faith in Him. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear because there is a time coming when those who are not with Him will scatter. It's hard for me as I read that not to think of some of the texts we've looked at together in the evenings. So we've thought about the coming of our Lord, His return. We looked at texts like Isaiah chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 4 5 and 6, and we saw in those texts how they conclude with pictures of people scattering on the day of the Lord from His presence, fleeing into the rocks and the caves to try and escape Him, and yet unable to escape His judgment. There is no way of escape from the judgment of God except through the one who brings the judgment of God. He is our only refuge and will be our refuge on that day. Jesus does not say, flee from me into rocks and caves to to, to escape my wrath. He says, fly to me to escape my wrath. And yet those who refuse to decide for him, refuse to believe, they will scatter on that day. Even if they won't be able to say, well, I had not yet made up my mind indecision concerning Christ is a decision concerning Christ. Now, there's another reason why we need to see that there's an urgent need to make a decision now. For we all recognize that Christ has not yet come. There is still time. The reason is because spiritual warfare is real. Look at the way Jesus describes the activity of an unclean spirit after he has been cast out. Essentially, he pulls back the curtain and shows us, this is what happens. This is what that demon does after I cast him out. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, in that time, they would have thought about the wilderness, the, the desert, desert places, the way that we might think of a deserted mansion that's broken down. And you, you think of it as a place that's haunted. And they would have looked at these wilderness places as a haunt of demons and of jackals, if you will. And Jesus is saying that he passes through waterless places, this demon. But he doesn't find a place of rest. And not finding a place of rest, then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And and of course he's meaning, I will return to the man out of whom I went out. But he does not return alone. In verse 25, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. You see the idea that he's using here. The idea is that of, uh, you, you may have seen in the news recently, there's been a craze about um, squatters, tenants, people who, who, who go into an empty house and they set up the uh, domicile and they forge a uh, um, a rental agreement and they claim that this is, their, this is their legal place of residence and they pay no rent and, and they, uh, they, they're not easy to evict in, according to the laws of some places. But suppose that a man does succeed in evicting those people who aren't paying the rent but he doesn't go on to change the locks and he doesn't procure new tenants or reside in the place himself. What are they going to do? They're going to come back with more, more strength and more numbers and they'll take it over again. Or you could say the same thing in a battlefield. We, we all know stories from the American Civil War about how uh, men might be captured and their weapons confiscated and then they'd be told, go back to your homes and your farms. And many did. That's an amazing thing. But I'm sure that not all did. And if that were to happen today in warfare today, we certainly know what are they going to do. They will find their way back into the battle. They'll regroup and they'll gather their strength. And what Jesus is essentially saying is that there is a war. There is a spiritual warfare going on between kingdoms. But the time has not yet come for their ultimate destruction. Jesus was not doing that when he was casting out demons. He was simply freeing this man, taking back this man for himself. But if that man then does not make a decision for Christ, does not come into a relationship with Christ by faith, it's as if he swept his house and put it in order. And left it empty. Now this demon can come back with greater numbers and can occupy the place he had held at first. A, there is a reality to spiritual warfare, and then his state is worse than the first. This language is echoed in Second Peter chapter two. In second Peter chapter two. Peter gives us a sense of what this would look like in our own experience. There, Peter is talking about false teachers this is the way in which we see spiritual warfare most readily in our day. False teachers arise and they seek to lead astray people uh, who aren't quite sure about Christ. They seek to convince them to turn from Christ in some way, in some subtle and deceptive way, to, to, to even, even maybe convincing people that they can follow Christ and have it uh, uh, w- w- without necessarily embracing his lordship in their life in various ways. And they dealt with that in the early church and Peter spoke about these people who would call early Christians to go back to the life from which they were called out. You can imagine people in the pagan world, in the Roman world, being called out of all sorts of practices that were contrary to the Word of God, and yet not being quite sure about this Christian faith, not being sure about this person, Jesus Christ. They've come through the knowledge of Christ, but they're not yet really embracing Him in faith. At the end of this passage, then, in 2 Peter 3, down there in verse 17 and following, Peter wrote these words. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. In other words, they give the appearance of of a a source of water, but there's, there's no real... There's nothing really there. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. He's talking about the false teachers. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Here we hear that Echo of the language of Jesus, the last state becoming worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow of the mire. This is the way that we see spiritual warfare play out most often in our day. Not through a very clear and unmistakable demonic possession, but rather through the enticements that come to us through the world that would draw us away from faith in Christ, that would promise us something of freedom and yet really be delivering us slavery. If one is is overcome by the passions of the world, he is a slave to those things. What has Christ come to do? He has come to truly set us free. But along comes someone who says, no, true freedom is found in... Embracing your true self, your true identity. Can you not hear that kind of claim from our world today? Saying that what you need to do is embrace really who you are. And what they mean is that you need to embrace whatever sinful passion arises out of your heart and pursue that. We're promising freedom in finding your true self or finding comforts in this life. And yet, seeking to enslave people to all kinds of things that are contrary to God's Word. There is a spiritual warfare that is going on, yet it's hard to see because it doesn't happen in those unmistakable ways that we see it in the Gospels. And yet it is really happening. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the spiritual powers. Those are the ones against whom we wrestle, as Peter here says as well, through false teaching, and let me tell you where you're most likely to see this false teaching. Through technology. A lot of uh, uh, fathers recently I've seen talk about that moment when they first gave a cell phone, a smartphone, to their son or daughter. One, partic- one man in ge- general said to his son as he handed it to him, On the other side of this phone is every imaginable evil in the world at your fingertips. You didn't know that it would draw you away and draw your heart away from Christ. And faithfully and and wisely, those men did not give their children something like this at a young age, but when they were able to handle that. Stephen and I went to a conference this week where we heard about these kinds of things, where people through social media and technologies will come into contact with strangers, adults, who will feed them ideas and warp their mind, people they don't even know, who present the idea that they're offering freedom, but are actually seeking to enslave people to all sorts of things that would lead them away from Christ. We, whether we are children or adults, we need to be very careful with those kinds of things. These technologies are powerful, and they would seek to rival Christ, or the people through them would seek to rival Christ, and to draw us away. There is a real spiritual warfare going on. What do we do about it? How do we respond to that? Do we, do we simply set up limits? Say, well, I won't give my child a smartphone until they're 16 or 18... ...or some, idea, some, some, some arbitrary designated day? That might be wise to set up limits like that... ...for ourselves or for others. But at the end of the day, the only way to deal with this problem... ...that we see here and the problem that we face in our lives is through the power of god dwelling within you the only way to keep that mighty power out of your house is by letting the stronger one dwell in you and how does he dwell in you through the holy spirit that he has given and to whom does he give the holy spirit to those who repent and believe in the gospel Those who embrace Christ by faith, he promised his disciples in John 14 that the Father and I, we will come and make our home with you. And I don't care if it's seven or 700 of the mightiest demons, they cannot displace their creator. They cannot displace God Almighty from your life. If I look at Jesus as someone who merely makes my life better here and now, I'm not really making a decision to follow him. I will not endure when my life is not better but worse in the near term. I've not really trusted him then. I'm not really following him. He said, if anyone would, must, would follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Then the cares of the world will choke me out, or the scorching heat of persecution and trial will cause my faith to wither. And I'll look to these other things, and I'll let them occupy the space in my heart, especially as I receive promises of a better present from those who do not know Christ. But if I see Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I trust Him and entrust myself to Him, if I love Him and keep His commandments by believing in Christ and loving others, I can also trust His promise to make His home with me. And if He dwells within me, no earthly power or spiritual power can occupy that house, that same space in which the Holy One of God dwells through the Spirit of Christ. Now, I'm not making a claim that our faith precedes that work of the Spirit in our heart. I'm not saying anything about the order of these things. What I'm saying is that when we look at it from the perspective of faith, it's an act, it's a decision that you make. When we look at it from the perspective of what God Himself does in causing us to be born again, it's God's work. So you are told, you must be born again in the passive sense. You must Have Almighty God work within you. But you're also told you must repent and believe in the active sense. There is something you must do. And when you do that, you're taught to recognize that that too is a gracious gift of God in your life. That order is important. But this text is not making a claim one way or another. It's simply challenging us from that perspective of what we must do. We must repent and we must believe. We must commit our lives and entrust ourselves to Him all the way through this present evil age. For there is a real urgency, not just because he is coming again and judgment is certain, but because of the reality of spiritual warfare in this age, and the way in which we see it unfold. Tools of the devil are powerful, but they are not more powerful than our God. So Jesus calls us to make a decision, to trust him, to entrust ourselves to him by faith. Now, in the remainder of this text, we can move through it rather quickly because what Jesus shows us through the correction of a wrong beatitude, through a response to the growing crowds, and through a proverb about the eye and the lamp, he shows us what it means to embrace him by faith, to see him rightly, and to understand the basis of our relationship to him. He calls us to decide in that particular way. Look at this beatitude. A woman in the crowd raises her voice and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now here it's helpful to remember what Elizabeth said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 42 through 45. In Luke chapter 1, when Mary came to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth greeted her, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. We hear some language echoed there. But this word that she uses a blessed there, in that first instance, is a different word. The difference is that of someone uh, uh, someone imparting a blessing to another, the way you might imagine when Abraham imparted a blessing to his sons. The beatitude that we saw from the woman is a statement of fact about the blessed life, the good life. You could translate that one slightly differently, saying, happy, happy is the womb that bore you. But here, Elizabeth is saying, She's imparting a blessing, like saying, I bless you, for you among women. But she will go on to use that other form of the beatitude. Listen with me. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Look at how her focus is on the Lord and not on Mary. It's the mother of my Lord. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Where does she put true blessedness? In faith. Not in the fact that Mary is the mother of Jesus, but in the fact that she believed what God had spoken. And we see Jesus say very much the same thing in Luke 8, when his mother and brothers are waiting for him. In Luke 8, verse 19, Then his mother... And his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who, what? Hear the word of God and do it. They hear God's word and they respond in faith. They are my mother and my brothers. In other words, he's saying, my nearest relations, my closest family are those who trust my Father in heaven. and Embrace me by faith. We see that same language echoed then here in Luke chapter 11. She raises this idea saying, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. In other words, the explanation for your great wisdom must be that you had a blessed mother. Or uh, maybe even saying like, if only I could have been in her place, I'd be blessed for being your mother. He said to her, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see that same idea you saw in luke chapter 8 who is truly blessed the one who hears god's word and responds in faith god commands us to what to believe in our lord jesus christ and to love one another the person whose life is marked by those things that person is truly blessed the basis for our relationship with christ is our faith and faith has its fruits faith involves an active response of faith where we submit to Christ's lordship. We don't earn His favor by keeping God's word. It's the evidence of a true and abiding faith as we love God with our whole heart and we love one another. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Respond to Him in this way. Embrace Him in this way. We have the information before us. He Himself taught us how we might come into that blessedness, and how we might come into that relationship with Him through faith, not apart from it, not through anything intrinsic to us, but through the grace that is given us as we believe in Him. Then we see the crowds start to grow and increase, and Jesus confronts this generation. Next week I'm going to dwell a little longer on this idea of uh, this, this phrase, this generation. I want to suggest to you, and I'll explain why next week with a greater clarity, that this is a reference to all unbelievers who reject God and His people in every age. And it's particularly manifest in that particular generation before Jesus. But this generation continues with us all the way until His coming. I, I will explain that next week. I think the way that we'll see that is by looking at this phrase, this generation, across Luke's Gospel, and as we look at it particularly in the passage next week and across the Bible as well. But here at least we have a particular manifestation of this generation as Jesus confronts that sign-seeking generation. Those people standing on the fence and again, heightens the urgency for them to come off that fence and embrace Him by faith. The idea is simple. They seek a sign and they're not going to get a sign except the sign of Jonah. From elsewhere we see that this finds his fulfillment in the resurrection of Christ. That he goes into the grave and rises on the third day just as Jonah was in the whale and and, and, and was spit out on the third day. But here, Luke doesn't dwell on that point. He simply says, Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh. He came into Nineveh and all he said was 40 days and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all the revelation they got. And they responded rightly. They repented. And then Jesus raises the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, who When she heard of Solomon's wisdom, she came from the ends of the earth to see it. She believed. All she had heard was a report that there's this king in Israel who's extremely wise. And she came. She responded in faith. They didn't have a lot of information, and they responded rightly. And so Jesus says, there's a day coming when this generation will rise. That means rise from the dead. And those people will rise from the dead too. The people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba. And what will they say? They will condemn this generation. Why? Because they had the greater revelation. The Son of Man. The glorious Christ. The one for, through who, for, uh, to whom all the prophets looked. They had Him before their eyes. Doing mighty works. Works that only God could do. And they did not believe but kept seeking a sign. Jesus shows them the urgency of repenting and believing and changing their mind. Because something greater than Jonah, someone greater than Solomon is before their eyes. And he's before our eyes too through God's word. We can see how he brings to fulfillment all of God's saving promises, how he does the works of God. We have it through eyewitness testimony set before us. Credible testimony from a multitude of witnesses in Luke, in all of the Gospels, throughout the New Testament. We have sufficient evidence to believe. We're called to believe on that basis. But if we fail, will not our condemnation be great on that day when we are raised from the dead, either to everlasting life or to judgment? Finally, Jesus speaks in a proverb, proverb about the eye and the lamp. And here he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. He used the same proverb in Luke 8, verse 16. In Luke 8, verse 16, he said virtually the same words when he said, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Then he goes on to say that nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. In other words, what he said, th- th- that first use of the proverb has an external focus. That God's revelation is so that others might come and see it. And he tells those who hear him in that context, take care how you hear. There's a similar way in which he uses this proverb here, but also a slight difference. Here, he looks inward, saying, your eye is the lamp. You, we need to understand the equation. Your eye is the lamp is the lamp, and your body is analogous to the room. The eye is the lamp of your body. Just as there's a lamp in a room, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Just as he said there, take care how you hear. He says essentially here, take care how you see. And we've seen through Luke's gospel that hearing and seeing are analogous with either faith or unbelief. Good hearing and good seeing corresponds with recognizing Jesus for who He is. Bad hearing and bad seeing corresponds to that blindness that typified Israel in Isaiah's day and which Jesus said typified those people who heard Him in His day. So many of them in any case. But for those who had the privilege to see he called them to see well and to recognize that gracious privilege they'd received. He told them to avoid seeing badly by avoiding hypocrisy in their hearts. When, in Luke 6, 41 and following, he said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That is, people's vision, their ability to see with faith, obstructed by their own self-righteousness. Later, in chapter 8, verses 10 And 11, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing what they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Their sight and their hearing was bad. They could not see and they could not understand with faith. But to the disciples it had been given, because they repented at the preaching of John and they repented at the preaching of Christ, they came to recognize Him as the Christ through God's gracious revelation. And so Jesus says to them in chapter 10, verse 23, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Seeing and hearing has to do with seeing Christ for who He is. Repenting at the preaching that calls us to repent of our sins and looking to Christ with faith. And Jesus here again is telling His disciples very much the same thing. Take care how you hear, how you see. Let the eye of your body, let the lamp of your body be full of light. Don't cover it up. Don't blind yourself by self-righteousness and by pride and by arrogance and by sensuality or by by those, those sinful things that will draw you away from Christ. But let your eye be wholly well, and how can you do that? By hearing him and believing him and trusting him all through this life receive the information that he has set before us receive it well and respond as he calls us to respond we may be indecisive in other areas of our life but in this we have all the information we need we've all the information to need and we know that the time is urgent the times we live in are not so very different in the times of Christ. We struggle to commit everything to Christ in faith, and we face an ever-present assault upon the possibility of faith. But Jesus here graciously confronts us and shows us that we have what we need to decide. By showing us the urgency of the matter, He calls us to trust Him, that if we entrust ourselves to Him in faith, we can be confident that whatever we face in this life, we will find on that last day, that that decision that we made was right. and We can give thanks to God that graciously He gave us the ability to make the decision that was necessary to be made. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do pray, O Lord, that You would enable us to decide all the days of our life, waking and sleeping, to decide to follow Christ by faith not by faith in ourselves and what we bring to the table, not by faith in our own merits, but faith that we will find that perfect and eternal blessedness that comes through Him by a gracious gift that You give to those who truly believe. May this be our hope all our days, O Lord. May we trust in Your Son no matter what comes our way. May we look forward to that day when in the resurrection we will stand before His throne and worship You with hearts that are cleansed by His blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.